Consequence Podcast Network. The Psychoanalysis Podcast explores the ways that horror movies examine mental health issues. It deals with mature and sometimes disturbing subject matter, and it may not be suitable for all listeners. It is meant for entertainment purposes only, and not as a substitute for proper therapy. If you or a loved one are currently experiencing mental health difficulties, please contact your local mental health center. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Laura Utterstall. And I'm Mike Snoonian. And we are continuing our theme of residential treatment for Mental Health Awareness Month. Hooray! With with the 2018 cell phone movie, Unsane. (laughs) Sorry, just calling it the cell phone movie. This is like so dismissive. (laughs) I know. It felt like, like, I just felt like I needed some descriptive words in there, you know? I mean... I mean, All shot is, on iPhones. Yeah. Uh, Soderbergh directed, not yes. Linklater. I not no. not mixing them up. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably a more compassionate way to refer to it. Um, <laughs> and we will talk about cell phones, I'm sure. But yeah, um, and I, gosh, I have so many feelings about this movie, and I cannot wait to um, jump in and talk about it because whoo. But before we do, let's give a brief synopsis of the movie in case you haven't seen it or it's been a while. So here is your spoiler alert. And I don't even have a joke for a spoiler alert this time. Spoil, spoil, would... spoiler alert. You're going to get upset. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> or it could just be my scream of like rage and terror. <laughs> yeah. This is a very uh, intense movie. Let's put it that way. Yep. <laughs> Emotionally intense. Okay. I have some feelings. <laughs> Sawyer Valentini is a young woman who's just moved to a new city and a new job. She has a no BS attitude, but seems to be harboring a hidden pain that leads her to keep people at arm's length, including her mother, who now lives 400 miles away. After a date goes disastrously wrong, we see her Google up support for victims of stalking. This leads her to Highland Creek Behavioral Health Center. Just under clap. And I'm trying to make it ominous. I don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I found I I found the omin omnipity. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta admit, I am so lost right now. I, I don't know what is to be lost about, Mike. <laughs> That's gonna be one of those. Uh, episodes, <laughs> oh boy. Okay. <sighs> On her lunch break, Sawyer drives there for a consultation with a therapist. She talks about how getting stalked made her feel, and we see her be open and vulnerable for the first time. So, of course, the therapist totally leads her into talking about suicidal ideation. This is a big red flag. Thinking she's just signing up with a new therapist, Sawyer signs some forms without thoroughly reading them. They're boilerplate, the counselor says. You know, your standard commit me to a Just hospital. your standard, yeah, uh, sign mm. your life and livelihood away uh, and inadvertently commits herself to a 24-hour hold. Her intake is chilling. No one will tell her what's going on and she doesn't even realize she's being committed until she's been forced to strip and is taken into a day room in a hospital gown. 
She calls the police for help, but she signed the intake forms, so they can't do shit. And I doubt that they would, even if they could. That's just a little bit of color commentary here (laughs) on the radio. Um, Okay. (laughs) That night, she's harassed by fellow patient Violet, who threatens her with a shiv and punches an orderly that she momentarily takes for her stalker. Because of this, she's labeled as a threat to herself and others and stuck there for another seven days. Another patient, Nate, sees that she's struggling and totally out of her element. He takes Sawyer aside and gives her the DL. This whole thing is an insurance scam. Hospitals like Highland Creek do this shit all the time, and she was only admitted because her insurance company agreed to pay. Her best bet is to keep her head down and write it out. But as it turns out, her fucking stalker is one of the attendants. <laughs> okay, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry if anyone's listening with headphones in. Um, okay, she she promptly and rightfully loses her shit, as did I. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His real name is David Strine, but his ID says George, and the other employees seem to accept him as one of their own. She tries to tell everyone the truth, but no one believes her. She's restrained and sedated. That night, she wakes up and sees that Nate has a cell phone, and he's talking to someone. He's actually an undercover journalist doing a story on this place. What a cool and smart and handsome guy. Oops, this is Lara taking over. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, <clears throat> Jen concurs. <laughs> I like him. <laughs> He's really likable. I know. The next day, she borrows Nate's concealed phone to call her mom. Amy Irving, hooray! <laughs> <laughs> mom didn't know about the stalker, but Sawyer finally tells her everything. Mom freaks out and packs a bag. Go, Mom! Mom to the rescue! <laughs> <laughs> she tries to get Sawyer out, but has no more luck with the cops than Sawyer did. And after raising an appropriate level of ruckus at the hospital, a terrible administration lady threatens Sawyer's future employment if Sawyer's mom gets litigious. As Mrs. Valenti apparently doesn't know much about HIPAA or labor laws, she takes the bait and backs down, for now. Strine continues to torment Sawyer, drugging her and menacing her. Sawyer can't do anything about it because he holds all the power, and no one believes her story. She is trapped in every sense of the word. Later, pretending to be a hotel maintenance person, Strine cons his way into Mrs. Valenti's hotel room. Mom, no! Amy Irving, no! Okay. Um, she's, you kind of know what, anyway, he kills her. He, he, killed, he kills her. Uh, after, after witnessing Nate and Sawyer talking, the jealous murdering freak Strine attacks Nate, ties him up in the very poorly monitored basement, electroshocks his head, and kills him by overdosing him with fentanyl. It's terrible, and I hate it so fucking much, and I'm still upset about it. TBQH. God damn it. Mm-hmm. What is the key to you? Quite. Oh. Is that right? Uh, to be quite honest. I thought, of, okay. <laughs> TBQH. I couldn't figure that out. To be quietly honest, to be quirkily yes. honest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll stop. <laughs> Uh, to be quintessentially honest. Okay, I've got to. I've got to stop. <laughs> to be Quiznos honest. <laughs> mm, toasty. Kind of <laughs> Quiznos is the worst sandwich place of, of all time. Okay, you heard it here first. <laughs> I just got to sign up for a sponsorship deal with Quiznos. Oh yeah, uh, I, mean, I mean, by worst mm. I mean best. It's kid slang. That's what the kids say. That's You're right. totally the worst. It's opposite day. <laughs> I think that chain went out of business like 20 years ago. Okay, (laughs) moving on. Okay, but it turns out Nate was keeping notes. After his death, an orderly promptly delivers them into the clutches of the evil admin lady. 
After finding Nate's phone with a picture of his body under her pillow, Sawyer once again freaks out. She tries to show the orderlies, but is sent to solitary confinement in a padded, windowless room in the basement. Strine joins her in the room, finally dropping the charade now that she's completely trapped with no one to see, hear, or help her. He loves her. He's always loved her. She's a perfect angel. He wants to take her to his remote cabin in the woods that's off the grid and has a well. A well. But still our hearts. This is so romantic, especially coming on the heels of locking her up and murdering her friend. Wow. Mm. I love men and dating. Yes. Okay. <laughs> there is oh, There is a little breakfast diner. Here, so it's not all bad. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were going to really... renovate the diner. Mm, yeah. yeah, and she gets a breakfast sandwich. He so. did. He did bring her a breakfast sandwich. I had an uncle that did that, and he bankrupted his family. Like he bought a breakfast diner in a college mm. town, and then he mm. bankrupted his family. Yeah, he people don't work. understand restaurant overheads. It's a lot. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Have they not seen Bar Rescue? Okay. <laughs> uh, where am I going with this? Okay, she. <laughs> She gets him to leave by verbally berating him, handing his ass to him on a platter and telling him his fantasy is not real. But he comes back the next day with breakfast. What a gentleman. She manipulates him. She can't be with him if he's never been with anyone else. She wants him to have sex with Violet. Yes, specifically Violet in front of her. We see the wheels turning in her eyes, but Strine does not. He brings Violet down to the padded cell. Turns out Sawyer's plan was to get Violet's prison shiv to attack David with, which she does, stabbing him in the neck. All well and good until she wriggles out and locks Violet in the cell with him. Uh, he breaks her neck as Sawyer watches. Oy vey, Sawyer. Yep. yep. I don't know. We can talk. Yeah. We'll, have, we'll talk about that. We'll have, I have some thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. She runs through the halls, finally free, emerging behind the hospital into the night air, but not so fast. David finds her outside and knocks her unconscious. Meanwhile, Nate's report has broken. The cops find the body of the real George in the woods, and the hospital is now fucked. Good. Fuck you, hospital. Yes. <laughs> Fuck <laughs> you. <laughs> Fuck you. Uh, the police have a warrant and arrest evil admin lady when they find Nate's notes in Violet's body. Fuck you, too, lady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just so much anger <laughs> produced you. by this film. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, really. <sighs> yes. <sighs> Sawyer wakes up in David's trunk as he drives through the woods. Her mother's body is also in there with her. Sawyer somehow manages to open the trunk. She jumps out and runs through the woods. David catches up to her and we think hits her in the ankle with a hammer. It's hard to see because they shot the whole fucking thing on iPhones. <laughs> yeah. It's hard to see. It's a little, a little lit. It's okay, very filtery. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, it's just hard to see. <laughs> David drags Sawyer's unconscious body through the woods, saying some really gross stalker things, then lays down next to her. He wants to start a family. But it turns out she was only pretending to be unconscious and stabs him in the eye with her mother's cross necklace, then cuts his throat with it, too. Six months later, Sawyer is having a really weird, passive-aggressive lunch with her coworker, and we find out she's gotten a promotion and is generally doing well, all things considered. But across the restaurant, she sees a diner from behind. He has dark hair and a beard. Is it David Strine? She grabs her steak knife and she walks up behind him, only to find it's just some rando and her eyes were playing tricks. She flees the restaurant in a panic, looking over her shoulder. And as the credits roll, the film suggests she always will be. 
It has a perfect 1970s freeze frame. It does. I like that, you know, and with the when the credits start rolling. I, I think you pointed out in the uh, original draft of the um, synopsis, Jen, that's also a very misery-like ending. Oh, yeah. Uh, very, very misery-like. Mm-hmm. I just want to sing. The freeze, freeze frame. Yeah. Yeah. Whew. Got some thoughts on that ending that we'll talk oh, about. Oh, yeah. You <laughs> say you have thoughts on the Jake Giles band. <laughs> is that the song or is that it the, is. the yep. artist Boston's own yep ah nice I just know the I, I just know it as a joke in my brain you know maybe I should <laughs> maybe I should give the song a chance um so now let's do a feelings check and this one this one really got to me and I am looking forward to unpacking it with you too Mike would you care to begin sure so I watched about half of this movie a year ago and thought it was like a pretty fascinating experiment in filmmaking. Soderbergh is like, he's definitely a director that's not afraid to like shine a light on social issues and specific injustices. And he does it in a way where he still can entertain an audience rather than like kind of beat them over the head with a hammer trying to make a point. And he's got these films that are just like incredibly entertaining in his arsenal, like the Ocean's Eleven movies and Magic Mike. I mean, things that are just pure crowd pleasers. But then he'll do something like this. He'll do something like Side Effects. He'll do something like, uh, which is about like basically the pharmacology industry. He'll do uh, Contagion, which is, you know, the whole um, virus movie where he can show like, hey, here's how things can go disastrously wrong. But he also loves exploring technology and what can be done with it in order to bring filmmaking tools to the masses. He's a guy in 2005 that kind of co-wrote and directed Bubble, which was notable for being done completely on high-def cameras and digital cameras, which is relatively new back then, but also using a complete cast that were non-professional actors. Um, that he found in like rural Ohio in West Virginia to show like, hey, this can be done. And obviously here, he shoots everything on iPhones. And he's not the first person to do it. I mean, we've seen movies like Tangerine mm-hmm. that does that as Love well. Love that movie. Yeah. Love but he's movie. like, he's definitely the most accomplished director to do this. So yeah, he's that's what like, made it notable to me was yeah. that it was like, why is Soderbergh doing this? But mm-hmm. yeah. So it's an interesting experiment the first third of this movie is the strongest part of the movie. It's a really damning indictment of the mental health system. And it's done in a way that like feels very plausible and very chilling. And I think if it stayed on track for that, and that first act sets up, like it would have a modern classic. Uh, I'm definitely going to have some thoughts on the counseling scene when we dive into the movie. Mm-hmm. When it turns to a movie about a woman being victimized directly by her stalker in this setting that she cannot get out of. Honestly, like it's a much weaker film at that point. What saves it are the performances from Claire Foy and Joshua Leonard. Like they are excellent in this movie. And there are some very good bits there. Like that moment, that scene in solitary confinement when Sawyer confronts David for really the first extended bit of time mm-hmm. is a really powerful moment yes. that's kind of undercut by the ridiculousness of the scenario itself. Um, 
it just was like there were so many like implausibilities to the movie and i'm usually not this person but i'm just like this just doesn't add up like nothing in this movie really adds up when it moves away from the how this person got trapped in the healthcare system and the other thing is like it feels like a penny dreadful to me it feels like varney the vampire for lack of a better description shooting on the iphone it makes it look really flat and ugly now there are parts where it works especially early because it feels like there's a voyeuristic quality to it and you get this sense that someone is always kind of lurking over sawyer's shoulder and that really works but there are other moments where it just looks so flat and dull there's no depth to it. I found myself having like to constantly like pause the movie and do something else for a few minutes because it just wasn't it wasn't holding my interest for long periods of time. It just was interesting. Eh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did not you know? have that reaction to it. Yeah, I get that. Exactly. I had the exact opposite. You know? <laughs> and you know, surprise that Damon cameo, like you get Woo! a wonderful surprise. In the final scene. It felt cruel to me in a way that I often don't like about movies. I think I've discussed this about the end of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where there's like Sally escapes, but there's no coming back from that. Like there's part of her is always going to be there. And like you see it at the end of this movie, like Sawyer escapes, but there's a part of Sawyer that's always going to be trapped and looking over her shoulder. So I don't know, like it felt like two completely different movies to me. But I think what's even though it didn't completely land for me, I think there's a lot of fascinating themes to talk about. And I think that's where it's going to you know, hopefully be beneficial. You know, I didn't necessarily love this movie, but like, hot damn, there's a lot of good stuff to kind of dive into. Mm-hmm. Laura, what about you? Yeah, it's definitely a stressful and upsetting film to watch. I don't it never lost my interest because it is so like, in my opinion, a well-paced thriller or whatever you feel about the implausibilities of it or what have you. I think that it, it, I mean, it, for me, it still had entertainment value in terms of keeping me on the hook. Like I never once wanted to walk away from watching this movie, but I, Mm -hmm. but mostly I was like extremely tense and upset the entire time also. So I think it hit me even harder this go around than on first watch, which again, I don't have like a strong memory as per usual, uh, but I know Mm -hmm. I saw it on streaming maybe like a little over a year ago because like Amazon still remembered that I had watched it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was, it can't have been that long ago. I feel like it was in a different apartment, like maybe, so it might've been like earlier in 2019 before I moved. So, you know, as I've mentioned on the show before, I have experienced light, gentle stalking, nowhere to the extent of the, uh, what Sawyer experiences in this film, thank God, hail Satan. But (laughs) as as Sawyer says at one point, I love um, that part. But I, oh, I, I got like that hard eye emoji in my notes when she said that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> like, we can't laugh at cancer. What can we laugh at? <laughs> Hail Satan. Like, I was I just like, oh, I love like, you. Oh. I get hang with you. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But, you know, for that reason, like for, for having had a bit of that, a taste of that experience, plus a, an extreme fear of being either imprisoned or committed against my will due to my mental health issues or even like trapped or confined in any way, this movie hits on a lot of my specific fears. And does so in the form of, like I said, what I thought was a very watchable thriller that rightly criticizes the American healthcare system. 
Um, I do think it looks like shit, but I might be coming around on it because it looks so shitty that I started to enjoy how shitty it looks. <laughs> uh, it really doesn't look like any other movie. And I did. I actually had the same thing in my notes about the phones giving it like a voyeuristic quality. I think mm-hmm. they basically were only able to achieve like very wide shots and very close up shots because like uh-huh. the, you know, anything else, it just doesn't let, you know work very well with what iPhones can do. I still don't know about it as a gimmick, but um, it's interesting. Yeah, I do think it's a powerful movie. And it was funny because I was looking at like kind of glancing at user reviews and I thought uh, I saw a lot of that theme of people saying it's not realistic or believable. And that took a lot of people out of it. I do think there are elements that stretch credulity or are not like really true to life at all. But I think what's scariest about this movie is how much of it could happen. And I was wondering if a lot of that criticism was a way of people dismissing that fear because people were saying even like the beginnings of the movie, you know, was unrealistic or not believable. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I I think it, what it does that is most interesting to me is that it combines a very real or, you know, something that could happen personal threat of being stalked and murdered by someone with that kind of fixation with a very real impersonal threat, which is being treated like a number or by a faceless healthcare system that doesn't care about you as a person and can destroy Mm -hmm. your life as swiftly as any killer. So I thought that was like a really, clever and interesting dichotomy that that pro- produces a lot of tension in this movie. Do I mm-hmm. think it's perfect? Do I think it works at every moment? Absolutely not. But it definitely stayed, it really stayed with me after the first watch. And after this one, I like, I watched it and I got like, I was pretty upset by it. And then I like sat in my room and cried for 10 minutes because it was mm-hmm. just like, I don't know, there's just something like really invasive and upsetting about it. And it just hits on so many of my specific fears. So I, it mm-hmm. did really have an impact on me for it's even, and I do think it absolutely has faults, but for the gestalt impact on me, it, it worked for me. So, yeah. 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 I had a similar reaction, and this was my first watch of it. Um, and I really didn't know what to expect at all. So, I was really kind of going in without any kind of preconceived, except I did know that it was all filmed on an iPhone. And I have a couple of very big problems with this movie one which we'll talk about which is the violet thing and then there's there's a big trigger in this movie for me that's the one that I don't really name yet that just kind of gets me but overall like I really I don't know if I would say I really loved or liked or enjoyed this movie but it really captivated me and it got me you know and it it tapped into some like a current of emotion that is like really strong in me you know and I enjoyed that and i feel like it's given me a lot of like fodder to think and talk about. Really, the biggest thing that I felt when I was watching it, which is this overwhelming feeling of powerlessness, you know, which is something that I seek out a lot of times because I it's it helps me exercise that. That's something that I feel like in my like in my past I've felt and something I kind of try to deal with now is like trying to claim power and how to do that. And so I do enjoy movies where I can really kind of get that feeling out and get some kind of like comeuppance at the end, you know? I think I wanted more comeuppance than we get, but I did really enjoy like when fuck you admin lady gets arrested. I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, like those moments I I really enjoy. I also, it's really easy for me to let go of any kind of like plot inconsistencies, you know? So that kind of stuff really doesn't bother me that much because I, I agree. There are some things that like, I was like, okay, but what's the likelihood that they would both end up in the same, like I, once I started to pick that yeah. apart and like, it doesn't hold up to scrutiny at all but right yeah. <laughs> i'm usually not that guy either i'm usually 
up for letting and I, there's a lot of things in here i let go for the sake of the narrative yeah i think because i was so captivated by the person who is like that faceless n- person in the system mm-hmm. and then when it becomes like something way different i'm like mm, i had a hard time i think the movie had a tar- hard time melding those two things and I agree with that. I do. But I also think like kind of like what Laura was saying, the two things that it's doing are both things that I feel that I really connect with really strongly. So like I was down for it. I agree with you though. And it's just like when I, a movie really connects with me really strongly, that's when I can let go of the mm-hmm. the stuff. Like if, if the co- core of the movie has me on board, I'm like, do whatever you yeah. want. I can, I'll, I'll put it together in my mind. Um, I also wrote, um, I just yelled, stop touching her in my notes because there is like a familiarity with people touching her in ways, even Nate, who I love. But there's a moment where he comes up and he sits right next to her and I'm like, too close, too close, too close. And I think that just kind of was kind of alerting me to how stressed this movie made me is that Mm -hmm. those things were kind of floating up in my mind. This also, like I... We'll probably talk about this later on, but I spent some time in a psychiatric ward that was very similar to this in a lot of ways. Much better experience. Like, I don't think it was a predatory ward at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it brought up a lot of those old memories. And while the memory, like, being there itself was overall a good experience, it just kind of brought me back to this really, really dark time in my life, you know? So that was another, like, ah! Mm -hmm piece of stress um and the iphone thing like i this was a fun thought experiment for me as i was watching it like because i agree with everything you're saying i don't think it looks great it took me out of the movie a couple of times you know and i think it kind of made me start thinking about like filmmaking itself you know because i know there's um I have not seen Tangerine, but I know that that is a successful movie and I've heard a lot of praise for it. And I think when there are movies like that, that can pull this thing off really well. I think it's easy for a lot of people to say, oh, see, you can make a movie on your iPhone now. It's that easy, you know? And I think this movie really shows it's not. There is still a huge barrier to entry for filmmaking itself, you know? And and with Tangerine, I mean, it was a much smaller budget film. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't have Matt Damon making a cameo in it. It's a, about a, a marginalized experience. There's a lot of reasons why it makes sense for a movie like that to be made that way. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. this just feels like a director being like, I'm going to have some fun with this, so, this thought, this thought right. experiment, which is like, why though? <laughs> you know, I don't right. think it even besides the voyeurism element, and cameras being everywhere kind of a thing. Like, I don't really understand it as a conceptual gesture with the themes of the film. Like, I don't really think that they, there's a dialogue there. Yeah. Uh, so, I don't know. I think and, I, I might argue the opposite, though. I think because when someone like Soderbergh decides he's going to do it, it brings a lot more attention to it. And it shows that, like, hey, these are things that can be done with it. Like, it, it kind of more normalizes it. And I feel the same way I feel like Lucas shooting on like being one of the first to shoot on the red camera where it was you know as much as i don't love the prequels and i don't really hate them as much as some people do because they are made for my daughter's generation and not necessarily for me he did it in a way to just kind of push the technology forward and allow others to have access to it so i don't really mind that like oscar-winning director is using iphones or other technologies say like let's see what can be done with it I don't I don't mind it 
in principle, I guess. I, like when I look at it in this movie, I'm like, there was no reason for it. They don't do anything interesting with it. Like early mm-hmm. DV stuff was interesting to me because that was truly the outset of digital filmmaking and and uh, the democratization of this art form in a way that never existed ever in film before. The iPhone thing, this came well after Tangerine. I just don't yeah. get it. You know, like the, uh, this specific example. Didn't that, I, let me, and I could be wrong about that. Let me fact check myself in real time. Tangerine is tw- was 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was what, 2019? 2018. 2018. Yeah. So, I mean, by the, you know, it's just like, I just don't, I don't, it's just like, sometimes I can totally see that. And I totally, you know, and I do appreciate that, like pushing the technology forward thing. I just don't think that's happening here. Yeah. It seems like very late to the game to be making an iPhone movie, Soderbergh doing it. It doesn't echo with the themes of the film really besides the voyeurism element. I just don't, I just don't get it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And they could have lit it better. I'm sorry. You can make, you you can make a fucking iPhone movie look better than this. They purposely Mm -hmm. desaturated it. And I get that it's a grim film. You can't necessarily, you know, that that's also a, a, a decision. It's a choice to make something look desaturated and depressing when your characters are depressed and desaturated. But it didn't have to look so underlit. And right. so ugh, it just, mm. well, the last scene in particular in the woods, like, yeah, you can't see trees shit. Look, yeah. You can't see anything. It actually, the trees look blue. Mm-hmm. Like it looked like they were on an artificial Christmas tree lot is what right. it, looked. it was yeah. really odd looking. It almost looked like green screen at that yeah. point. It looked so fake. And it's a, it's a, they, I know in the, the movie opens, it's on over those trees and you hear him saying something like the first time I saw you, you wore blue, mm-hmm. but it's like, ah, it just feels thin. Mm. Yeah. Well, and like, I don't mind that he shot it on an iPhone. Like I don't have a personal issue against him doing it. I think, I think the thing that it showed me really is if you, cause I just reviewed a movie that I'm not going to name because it is fucking garbage and <laughs> it felt a lot like this and it wasn't even shot on an iPhone, but it was like, it felt like a string of um, scenes tied together very, mm-hmm. very poorly. And so what I think this really showed me was you still have to have an artistic vision to make a movie. You still, I think when I say like, it shows that there is a barrier to entry. It shows that there is now, because Mm -hmm. if an Oscar winning director cannot use this tool to make a fantastic movie or cannot like, what's the word I'm looking for? Elevate it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that we still have a way to go before making movies is as accessible to everyone as I think some people like to say it is, you know? Yeah, I just think it was it's a really ambitious movie to shoot on iPhone in terms it of is. like with everything going on and I just don't know. It just it felt like a disjointed choice to me. I think that the movie suffers for it rather than becoming more interesting because of it. Like totally if you could agree. just if this just looked a little better and you could see some of those scenes a little better, it would be a better movie. Like yeah at least it would be good to look at, you know, and you've got, you've got all these really great performances and the performances shine through the mediocre cinematography and stuff, but it's just like, it's just like, I just keep going, why though? I know that's the thing. It's like, I don't know what it did just feel like I want to see if I can do this and I have this script, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. How much did looking at the movie pull you out of it? And I will admit like it pulled me out 
a fair bit. So it pulled me out some more the first watch around, mm-hmm. you know, because and this time I knew what it was going to look like. So I was able to focus more on the story and the characters, you know, so I think that's why it bothered me less the second go around because mm-hmm. I was over my negative reaction to being like, what am I fucking looking at right now? And, I, you know, yeah. I was able to pick up on more because I knew I already knew the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so it did pull me out a lot the first time. It didn't really, I mean, it did pull me out a couple of times, but I was really so engrossed in the story mm-hmm. that it didn't really bother me that much. Um, the only reason I brought it up is because I know, well, I mean, because we were talking about it anyways, but, um, and that's the reason I brought up that other garbage movie that I watched is because I was watching that movie and that was probably filmed digitally. And I hated that fucking movie 20 minutes in and I wrote in my notes so many times it, I can't, stand the way this is put together and I never felt that way with this movie Mm -hmm. because I feel like the acting is great here I feel like there is a really strong directorial vision for this movie I feel like the tools kind of get in the way of that Um, exactly Mm -hmm. and so that's when I say it was a thought experiment like I'm not really one to notice directors that much you know unless it's somebody like Martin Scorsese um, that has like such a really clear stamp you know I just don't really think about it that much or like Tim Burton or something you know Mm -hmm. And this really kind of brought my attention to you really need somebody who has a firm grasp of the story to make a, like a movie that I'm going to want to watch. And I do think that he had that. I think the tool he used, I think, just kind of hindered the movie, but not so much that I didn't like it, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyways. So those are those are my iPhone thoughts. I, there was a moment too where I was like, "Is this just a commercial for iPhones?" When she was like talking to her mom at the beginning, I was like. Is it? And it reminded me of that thing, this the short story Stephen King wrote for Kindle, where he like got this deal with Kindle to be like the first story ever. And I was like, is it some kind of marketing thing? Is that why they did this? You know, it just right. felt it felt weird. Yeah, I get that. But I think on that lines with King and others, like when you've done so much, you're constantly looking for the next thing, like just to see if you can do it. Like, why did you climb that mountain? I climbed right. it because it was there. And that is one thing that I love about Stephen King is that he will go for it. Mm-hmm. He tries all kinds of experiments that I really yeah. dig. So. He also wrote an Entertainment Weekly um, pop culture column. He did, yeah. It Man just likes to write, this. you know. Yeah, that dude can't stop. It's somebody, I know he needs medical attention. Yeah. <laughs> well, so speaking of medical attention, <laughs> perfect <laughs> transition. I know. <laughs> Let's uh, let's talk about our mental health issue for the month, which is residential treatment. And our first episode for this month was on Shutter Island. Wah, sorry, cue thunderclap. That that was a poor poor thunderclap on my part. But um, so we talked about kind of the origins and history of residential treatment in that episode. So make sure you check that out if you haven't already. And today, I think we're going to have um, we're going to take a more modern approach to the topic today. Yeah. yeah. So full disclosure, like. The past like couple weeks and trying to prep for this episode, like I've had a lot of trouble. Like, how do I want to approach it this week? I like Shutter Island was easy because we're like, hey, we're just gonna do the history mm-hmm. up to a certain point. And I found myself going back and forth. Like, literally, I just edited out a chunk of my notes. Like, as we were, I'm like, you know, I want to cut this part out as we're talking. And I think we got some great feedback from a couple listeners that we're going to incorporate mm-hmm. into here because I think they added first person perspectives like above and beyond like what I could just say like with some notes. So I'm really, really thankful for our listeners for doing that and kind of yes. sharing yeah, today. Totally. So I'll start just a couple minutes like to discuss 
why someone might need inpatient care, it's most often going to be if you have like persistent suicidal ideation with both like a plan and the means to carry it out. So if I'm working with a client, it's a very typical thing. Like each session, even if they're not someone that typically presents with suicidal ideation, you just have like a quick check-in and it's different with different people. But for some, it just might be like, any thoughts recently about hurting yourself? Just, you know, it's just, just checking in. And if, you know, more often than not, the answer is no with the persons I work with so far. Uh, if the answer is yes, like we might do like a very brief risk assessment, like, okay. And it's very simple. If it's something that's a little bit more serious in the practice that I work for, we use the suicidal ideation intensity scale, which is adapted from a longer assessment of the Columbia suicide severity rating scale. But a lot of the times the questions can be off the cuff and they come directly from the scale. You know, how often have you had the thoughts in recent days? Like, is it every day? Has it been like just once in the past week? Has it been every other? How long are the thoughts tending to last for? Like, are they fleeting thoughts? Are they something where you might have for a few minutes and then they're gone and you move on? Or are they something that sticks with you throughout the course of the day? I'll ask a person like, well, you know, what's your ability to control these thoughts? Do you find that no matter how hard you try to let them go, they tend to be persistent? Do they come and go on their own? Or are you able to kind of dismiss them when you want to? What might be the reasons that they're looking to carry something out? Like, are they trying to end their pains? And it's done on a scale from like, I want to get attention to I want to end the pain I'm suffering them in. So it kind of is a sliding scale there. And then like what deterrence they have in their life. So if I have to run like a risk assessment, there's a whole scale that we use to determine like how serious that really is. Versus what we see in the film. <laughs> yeah, versus 100%, 100% yes. Um, I've had to do like risk assessments at my school job. And what I've had to do from there, if it looks fairly serious, is like call like a, a mobile crisis team to come in and then get a hold of like the family and say, hey, this is what's going on. Like the crisis team is either going to come here and do an evaluation or you can come and pick up your child and go to the crisis team or to the ER and have a further evaluation done. This is what we're seeing right now. Like I'm not the person that signs the order to have them committed, but I'm mm -hmm. the person that might say, hey, you might need like a further evaluation just to gauge any risks that you're in right now. That's at one of my jobs. With my clients at my other job, like honestly, more often than not, like it's not, if it's not serious, we might say, okay, well, if this occurs, you know, if, if you find these thoughts are recurring, what is our safety plan? Like, who will you talk to about it? What are the lethal means that are around you and can they be removed? Do you have someone to check in with you? All of these things. So that's kind of a brief overview and about like what we would talk about like in a session with someone. And I kind of wanted to point it out just because like it, the most upsetting thing to me about this movie was that counseling session. Like that mm -hmm. was, you know, that hit, I would say that that hit in a hard way. And, and was it because, well, in my, the way that I interpreted that scene was one, she was, not at all compassionate. She was dismissive and she didn't use a proper means to assess her risk of suicide. I think it was right. like those three things in like, as like three quick punches hit me really hard. Was that, yeah. 
Does that seem right to you or what, what, what else was 100%. it? hundred percent. It was a hundred percent that. And then the complete lack of informed consent. Yeah. Yeah. That there. was a big was thing. Yeah. Thing. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was really it. Yeah. Thing I'm turning my spiel like that. This is literally, if you're sitting with me in a session, the thing I will say, whether I'm, wherever I am or wherever I'm at is like, Hey, look, whatever you say in this room stays in this room. You have mm-hmm. that. You have my confidentiality. The only acceptance to that are if you feel like you're going to hurt yourself or if you're going to hurt someone else, then I have like the ethical duty to warn those persons and help. Other yeah. than that, you can say whatever you want in here and that stays in here. And I'll even say like, unless there's a release where I can talk to somebody, I won't talk to them. Now, you know, they could call me and say, you know, is this, is this person seeing you right now? And I can say like new phone, who dis, and then mm-hmm. hang up if I don't have a release. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was really one of the things that got to me there. Yeah. And I was thinking, cause I kind of was going to mention like when I did my risk assessment thing and they, d- we all decided, like I knew exactly mm-hmm. what was happening. Like right. I knew what was going to happen after that. That was the thing that stood out to me the most is that she didn't even realize she had been committed yeah. until she was already in a hospital mm-hmm. gown, you know? And I remember um, I had called my friend and just, or I had texted her and said, hey, what, what what do you think would happen if I took all my Xanax, you know? Mm-hmm. And it was, and so she called my mom and she called and like, so they made an appointment for me the next day and I went into Vanderbilt mm-hmm. Psych Hospital and they were asking me those questions. They were like, okay, so how often do you have, I don't remember a ton about it, but mm-hmm. I do remember saying, well, this is what I wanted to do. And I was living alone at the mm-hmm. time. I did have a prescription for Xanax and I don't think I ever actually want, like I never took too much of it i just said mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um yeah. but i mean, I mean but it was a specific plan you specific know? thoughts specific plans and you obviously had the means to carry it out yeah and i remember you know i know for me i remember a situation where and the client was dismissing me it was like their guardian and the kid mm-hmm. and i could not make a connection with the kid and i think part of it because the guardian would never leave the session so you would ask a question to the kid and the guardian would hop in and the kid would just use them as a crutch because yep. like they never had to answer anything. Mm-hmm. So after like four sessions or like, this isn't working, I was interning at the time and like the guardian kind of laid into me, like how awful I was. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to sit here and take it. And I'm like, I'm just going to, but the kid had said some things in that last session. I'm like, I'm just going to let you know, like, why are you here? I'm like, based on what you're telling me, Honestly, like you can do whatever you want. I would go to the emergency room with him. I do think that there is a need for further evaluation. And they said, mm-hmm. you're completely wrong. You're an idiot. You have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, okay, not a problem. Like just letting you know, I'm going to do the discharge paperwork and I am no longer your concern. And I got a call like two weeks later, like crisis has been out here three times. I don't know what to do. Can you... And I'm like, there's nothing I can do. Like, I'm no longer the person's, you know, like you can bring them in. Like, can you, they wouldn't, they couldn't find the person a bed fast enough and they wanted me to intervene. I'm like, there's nothing I can do for you. Yeah. You don't want to be like, and then, you know, and you don't take any, I told you so glee in a moment like that. Like, you just feel really bad. You're like, I wish I could have found a way to get through to that person because it really sucks what both of them are going through. Yeah. You know, it's really heartbreaking. 
Well, and I think if there's one thing this movie shows, it's that, yes, that is a, a hard situation to be in, but those rules do exist for mm-hmm. a reason, you know, and that patients do should oh, have thanks. consent, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And as, as like, I've got a lot of feelings about my mom right now, but I mean, she mm-hmm. really, I think, handled it very, very well. Like, she yeah. went with me, but she wasn't answering for me. Like, she took it seriously. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, I feel like even when I'm talking about it now, there's mm-hmm. my tendency is like, well, I didn't take anything. You know, there's, yeah. I wanted to downplay it, but I mean, I did need to go and I yeah. needed to be away. And and I did a partial program, which I think we've mentioned a little bit. Yep. Like, I did not spend the night. I went, it was kind of, I, like, I went during business hours, you yeah. know, and I right. just showed up every day. Um, and I can talk more about it probably when we get into the movie. But um, I do remember me saying, because they were asking me, they told me exactly what was going to happen. And they said, here, you'll show up on, um, I can't even remember. Mm-hmm. But I said, okay, yeah, but what if I don't? And they said, well, I think then we would be talking about an involuntary commitment. you know. And mm-hmm. they didn't say that as a threat. They said, that's yeah. the next step because this is serious and and. Yeah. You know, so I that was the most I really ever tried. I don't even know if fight is the right word, but you yeah. know, yeah, and it yep. turned out okay. And you know, again, we can talk more about mm-hmm. it later on, but yeah. Uh, but I thought that was interesting too, because I think their risk assessment for me was I did not need to go immediately, mm-hmm. yeah. but I did need to go, you know, and yeah, and then that's you know, I think a movie like this. runs the danger of scaring off someone from seeking or asking for help when they really need it. Um, It's not that things like this can't happen in terrible hospitals and there's terrible doctors out there, but like these are, that's what Mike just described and what you just described are what is what should happen. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) You know, and you can Mm -hmm. look out for those things as signs of a place that is handling it well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's part of why like like why I want to do this show is to demystify that stuff yeah. so that you do see those red flags, you know. Yeah. Right. Well, on that line too about like demystifying things like when it comes to like inpatient care, like there's still a lot of misconceptions and stigma mm-hmm. and stereotypes around this kind of care. There's still a lot of persons that think it looks like it does in one flew over the cuckoo's nest or American horror story or whenever you see like Hurley and Lost. Yeah. So I had put some notes in here about kind of what it looks like now in some cases, but honestly, when we reached out to listeners asking if they had any experience with inpatient treatment, we did receive like one really uh, excellent response from a listener Mm -hmm. and they gave us permission to share uh, what their time was like. So Mm -hmm. uh, Jen, if you don't mind, um, do you want to read the email that we got? So this listener writes, I spent a little over a month at McLean Hospital in Belmont, best known for Girl Interrupted. I was 16 at the time, and I had tried to commit suicide. Life was kind of a clusterfuck. I'd gone through a bad breakup. I was being bullied, and my doctor had just prescribed a new antidepressant that wasn't working properly. The long and short of it is I sent out a goodbye email to my friends and then swallowed an entire bottle of Tylenol. One of my friends called the police and wound up saving my life. My experience at McLean was a positive one. I was put in East House, which at the time was for the treatment of adolescents and young people. Most of the other teenagers in the program with me were drug users. I was the only person who didn't have to go to a weekly NA meeting, which is Narcotics Anonymous. There was a giant painting of James Taylor in the common room. It was summertime, and going outside was considered a big treat. We were supposed to prepare our own meals, but we didn't have an adequately stocked kitchen in terms of utensils, not food. 
I remember mutilating a fork in order to open a can of green beans. I also remember not being allowed to have knitting needles unless I was being supervised. One of the orderlies took away my copy of The Wizard of Oz, the book, because she thought that the fantastical elements would be similar to a drug trip. There was a collection of videos that we were allowed to watch, and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory had been removed from rotation right before I arrived because some of the kids would describe prior drug trips while watching it. We were, however, allowed to watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers starring Donald (laughs) Sutherland. Overall, it felt a lot like being at a very surreal summer camp. The main issue for me stemmed from my mother, actually. Her first thought when the ambulance pulled up to our house was, what will the neighbors think? Is this going to wind up in the police blotter in the town newspaper? Whenever she did visit me, she stressed that it was important for me to get well, but I always got the sense that it was to make her look like a better parent to the outside world. I had short hair, and one of the orderlies had nicknamed me Winona after Winona Ryder and Girl Interrupted. When I mentioned this to my mother, she just said, Remember that she's the one who got better. I remember an exercise where I was supposed to role play talking with my mom about something that was making me nervous. At the time, she had badgered me about college, so I picked that topic. I told the doctor, I don't think I can go to college. They won't take me because I'm in a mental institution. The doctor explained that colleges wouldn't have access to this information, so it wouldn't really matter. The doctors and orderlies had a genuine desire to see me get well, but my mother was ultimately the person I would have to deal with in the long run. While I think that my stay at McLean helped me, I basically just learned how to hide my depression better around my parents. I was eventually given antidepressants that worked better, and I was taught how to better process my feelings. Overall, I felt a real solidarity with the other kids. We haven't kept in touch, but I think about them every now and again, and I hope they're well. Thank you so much for sharing that. That was beautifully written, and thank you. Yeah, so I thought that provided like a nice overview of like what like a modern hospital might be like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's a place where we hope. And one of the things that struck me in the email was like the comment at the end about like, I just learned to hide it better. And that (laughs) is Mm -hmm. definitely one of my fears. And if a person goes through this, They'd be like, well, next time I just won't say anything. Yeah. And it's something I fight. And I think I need to realize, like, honestly, most persons that, like, want to get better or want to get help will give some sort of signal Mm -hmm. as opposed to hiding it. I think everyone has their own threshold for when they don't hide it anymore. And I think in in that listener's story, it was a lot to do with their dynamic with their mother and hiding it Mm -hmm. specifically from the mother. And I think sometimes our... Our caretakers, we we hide from them, you know. In some ways, we, you know, become the parents to our parents, you know, and and protecting mm-hmm. them, and you know, um, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was nice for a, li- a couple of days. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I wasn't working. I was away from no. stress. You know, I think that sense of being like taken care of has yeah. a certain yeah. appeal to it. Because there's sometimes I have those thoughts where I'm just like, I just want life to stop and someone to take mm-hmm. care of me like I was a little baby, you know? Yeah. Uh-huh. And there's something appealing about that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I had like four days on the sofa last week and I'm like, this is glorious. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm catching up on all these movies. Yeah. I, this is, I don't want to go back to work. I'm going to lie mm-hmm. on the couch. Yeah. Like, it looked, the one that I was at looked very similar to this, yeah. like, in structure. Now, I didn't spend the night, so I don't know what mm-hmm. those rooms looked like because I always stayed in the day rooms. But um, I remember the food was really good. Oh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. It was, yeah. Um, 
and and you know this was kind of a private university hospital, so mm-hmm. it can know. your mileage may vary. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But the like the groups that we went to, like that was that was very similar. Other than the predatory part, this movie felt very mm-hmm. similar to what I experienced. Yeah. Except, and this is something I want to talk about when we get to the movie. So maybe we can save it there. But I was surprised sure. to see men and women sleeping in the same room. Yeah, that was a whole know? thing. I don't. Well, mm-hmm. we can. Yeah, yeah I've I've got a lot of thoughts on that yeah um, i think i mean they'll be housed together but i don't think they'll be in the in like the same sleeping, sleeping area yeah yeah which that, I mean, that struck me as strange it did and then i went down and i don't know how much we want to talk about this but like the first thing that i thought of was like the bathroom bills and i'm like a person's gender doesn't necessarily predict them being dangerous and because she is harassed by a girl and mm-hmm. more so really than anybody, any of the patients. Yeah. And so I think really what I was wanting more was not necessarily that men and women be separated, because I think now if the men and women were separated, it would be through harmful means to people who mm-hmm. don't necessarily identify as either. I think what I wanted was more supervision when they're right. asleep around strangers. Just, yeah, exactly. It's more just the, uh, oh, I'm sleeping around a bunch of strangers and right. no one is minding the shop. Yeah. Exactly. But even yeah. just even just privacy and liability yeah. concerns, yeah. even if we're just those two things. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the one that I was at had private rooms. Yeah. Like you I were think, not in it, with somebody else. This one, like they, it looked like they were housing like anywhere from four to eight people in one room. Yeah. And most hospitals now will be like, like you said, private rooms, maybe two people. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely, and again, it's one of those things you forgive for like narrative, like exactly that's one of the things that I like other things I couldn't, but that was one of the things I'm like, I can be a bit more, I get yeah. what they're going for here. So, so one of the things that unsane tackles is like commitment against an individual's will. And oh. I'll just touch on it briefly here. Um, laws are going to vary by state, but in Massachusetts, we have something called section 12. And this is where like an individual must be demonstrating symptoms of mental illness that lead to like a qualified practitioner believing they present like a danger to themselves, to other individuals or the community. Twelve Section 12A basically says that this person can be brought to a ward for an evaluation and if deemed necessary, treatment. And then Section 12B basically states they can be held against their will for up to three business days. And some of the behaviors would be like suicidal behavior or suicidal attempts, making threats against others, violent behavior against others, or just like poor judgment that could result in like significant injury or impairment. Like you may not have the intention to hurt yourself, but your actions are going to do that because just you can't defy the law of physics or nature. Right. The persons that can sign this orders would be physicians advanced practitioner registered nurses, a qualified psychologist, a qualified licensed social worker, or if none of the above are present, a cop, which is... Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I'll stop making (laughs) uh, cartoonish sound effects when I... I don't like it. Okay. Takes the edge off a little bit. (laughs) Um, 
maybe just knock that last one off. Okay, yeah. I'll stop. Yeah. I promise so I'll stop. In, in some cases, the person that's signing off on the order may not have had the opportunity to even examine the individual, like either because the person's like refusing to meet or they're just not in the same vicinity. So basically they're signing off based on like fact, what they're calling facts and circumstances. During the first three days, the hospital can either discharge the patient because they realize like, nope, they don't present any danger to themselves or others, or they can file a petition with the district court to extend that stay. For the same token, the patient can choose to then say, I want to be voluntarily admitted because I need help, or they can seek emergency judicial review for a discharge immediately. So that's just a brief overview. And I think like mm. you see some of that here. I know that it takes place in Pennsylvania. There's going to be like different, you know, discrepancies in the law depending on where you're at. But that's like a general overview of like what it would take to be committed against your will. Finally, Unsane provides this really scathing indictment of the healthcare system. And in particular, like the insurance scams and ways hospitals can prey on the vulnerable in like artificially drive up the cost of care we got uh lara had gotten like a really great exchange with one of our listeners detailing their time working in residential treatment and some of the abuses they witnessed so lara do you mind like talking yep. about what he had uh shared with you yeah this is from another um Listener, I do want to say this is relevant specifically to psychiatric care in the United States. Um, however, well, I'll put a pin in that thought and talk more about it in a moment. So this is from the email. Having worked at a for-profit inpatient psychiatric hospital for a short time, some of the things in this movie, Unsane, are scary true. The pressure on clinical staff to recommend inpatient care when it may not be absolutely needed keeping patients to the end of authorized days, even if no longer needing hospital level of care, chronic understaffing or poor staffing to keep costs down. It's the only job I left on bad terms, and I don't regret filing a complaint about them. So I asked this listener, what are some red flags to look out for in a hospital? Given how screwed up the American healthcare and hospital systems are, how do you distinguish a more predatory organization from a more reputable one? Avoid the hospitals that don't try to hide the fact that they are for profit. Yes, most hospitals are trying to make money, but a large amount of that profit goes into the healthcare system. I would try to avoid the freestanding psychiatric hospitals, and if you felt the need for admission, go to ones associated with the medical center, which in the movie um, is kind of referenced by the Nate character when he's like, you're talking about your rolling pines and your gentle mm -hmm. meadows and your mm -hmm. great lakes yeah. and all this kind of stuff, those places that are just kind of there freestanding, not mm -hmm. affiliated with a larger hospital system, just mm -hmm. uh, buyer beware. And I know that's not always a choice available to folks, depending on where they are located, the circumstances under which they're admitted. But I thought it was worth calling out. Um, we're also mm -hmm. going to link some articles that the same listener sent us that go deeper on the subject of for-profit psychiatric hospitals, one of which does cover a case in the UK that mirrors a lot of what's going on mainly in the United States. I think it happens here more because we, you know, we don't have any um, meaningful federally subsidized healthcare system. We do have mm -hmm. some some of it, obviously, but not to the extent you see in a lot of other countries. Um, but even in those countries that have, 
you know, like the NIH or whatever, there there are still insurance companies, there are still for-profit hospitals. You just see it a lot more here, and it's yeah. definitely absolutely run amok in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so no matter where you're listening from in the world, watch out. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, so we will link those articles in the uh, on the on the show webpage. So yeah, watch out for those. Some of the, like in reading some of these articles and a couple others in prep, like there was an article in New York Times on some of the um, inpatient clinics for substance and narcotic treatment, and they talked about one of the big scams was urine testing people up to four times a week. Mm-hmm. And then charging like twenty five hundred per test, like driving mm-hmm. that cost up until mm-hmm. the insurance companies just wouldn't pay for it anymore. But it became like such a profitable way to, you know, for like for the hospitals to just kind of like rake in money. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and then I could go down a whole rabbit hole of like te- diagnostics and testing mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. and cer- and certain treatments being the way that hospitals will. You if you see a hospital bill you will notice that the prices on it are like massively inflated. Yes. If you look pe- to the mm-hmm. like true cost, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the book that I'm, re- I've been slowly reading because it is like such a painful and dry read, but it's basically mm-hmm. breaking down like the history of how mm-hmm. we got here as a healthcare system and how hospital mm-hmm. and like what to look for in your hospital bill and all this kind of stuff. Cause this is how people end up getting really financially screwed over on top mm-hmm. of everything else. So um, I'll stop talking because this is uh, Pandora's <laughs> box from hell. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, And it's so, it breaks my heart to, because I watched this and I was like, oh shit, does that really happen? I think because my experience, and it was uh, like, it was Vanderbilt Hospital. So it was part of a medical center. And I think that's also what helped me. Yeah. Also, my mom worked at that hospital since before I was born. So mm. like, they weren't going to screw me over, you know? Yeah. Right, because you had a support system that was present on, um, like, the character in this film who's, like, really isolated. And, right. um, it, like, as, you know, as we will discuss momentarily, just gets more and more isolated and how that 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 impersonal system is is weaponized against her by the, the villain of the film, David. Totally. Yeah, yeah, and, like, Mike, as you were talking about commitment, like, voluntary versus involuntary commitment, like, there's a reason that we have both of those things, no. and I think both of those things are very important because some people do need help and they will not seek it for themselves. Right. And it is important to have that aspect of being able to commit people. The problem is we have these people that are exploiting the system to mm. weaponizing it, like you said, to just really harm vulnerable people, people some that are just extremely vulnerable, yeah. you mm-hmm. know? Well, yeah, and I mean, I was going to say it's interesting that this movie is focused on a white woman who has, mm-hmm. you know, has comes from some amount of money and it hasn't really experienced disenfranchisement before. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that is a really big theme here is that she does not like she does not know what is hitting her and how she sort of like turns to authority to save her at the start of the movie and then really quickly realizes how 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 quickly that that support system just ain't ain't there for her mm-hmm. once she's in the psychiatric system. Um, So how quickly people can get disenfranchised is really a a big theme of this film, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, and so maybe that's a good transition into talking about the movie. And that was one of the things that I noticed as I was watching it. The thing that I really connected with her is how she was so good at trying to work that system. You know how she would be like, oh, and I'm sure you're just doing your job and you really care. You're a really good listener. Like she was trying to really butter everybody up, especially when she was talking to the doctor. And then I feel like once she realized, oh, no, they don't give a shit about me. Like I'm stuck. That's when the anger Mm -hmm. started to come out. But it was interesting that that was her first 
weapon a lot of times mm -hmm. was to try to just like use to appease them, which is something that I feel like I do a lot. White women do, I think, a lot especially people who have been in like stalker situations, you know, cause we saw her do that with her boss at the very first scene too, you know, mm -hmm. I don't know. I might be a little off topic, but that was one thing that really stood out to me. And just the fact that it didn't work because the system didn't see her as a person really anymore. You mm -hmm. know? Like you, once she signed that paper, it was like a, yeah. a deal with the devil. Like, you know, everything just went to shit after that. Mm hmm. Well, okay, and so maybe we can start, because Mike, I know you said you had some thoughts on her first therapy session. Sure. When she does get just totally led into, like, I would say objection if we were in court, like leading the witness, <laughs> yes. you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly that. So <laughs> the counselor took Sawyer's comments about not wanting to live a life like this, like, so far out of context. It's yeah. not even funny. Like, it was, like, abundantly clear that Sawyer was referencing not wanting to live a life where she had to constantly look over her shoulder, constantly saw her stalker out of the corner of her eye, constantly had to like monitor every online interaction because they had to be constantly vigilant. And it was really clear that like what Sawyer was talking about wasn't talking about, I don't want to live a life period. She was saying like the way my life I'm living it right now, like something has to change from it. So, to then have the conversation like, okay, well, do you think about this a lot? And like, again, nothing in Sawyer's answers seem like there might be some, you know, you might say at that point, like, I've got a little bit of concern because you have such a specific plan about how you're doing this. Like, I, we need to talk a little bit about, you know, where these thoughts are coming from. If you're going down the route where you think that they have suicidal ideation, which I don't believe that she did. Like, I just heard her comments and I'm like... So if you're having that conversation. Well, it just sounded the way that Sawyer phrases it. It's like, yeah, she mentions a specific plan, but it sounded like she was talking about a conversation that happened a, a long time in the past. Yeah. And it wasn't like a current thought that was running through her head. She was just answering the woman's questions, perhaps a little too honestly at that moment. <laughs> Should have had a, you know, a little bit more of a guard up. Yeah. But This is the question you asked me. And I'm going to almost like she was being clever. In right. some ways by having, and she even like has that like, well, my dad says, if you're going to do something, make, you know, why have someone else screw it up if you're going to do it, if you can do it yourself, like, and there's a, a smirkiness to the way mm -hmm. that like, I'm like, ah, you know, I know, and this is what I can know and forgive in the interest of, of the story that Soderbergh wants to tell. But there's like never any talk about the limits of confidentiality between the counselor and Sawyer saying, hey, look, when we're in here. You know, if we're if there's going to be talk about hurting yourself or hurting other people, like that's when I have a duty to warn. There's no discussion about that, and there's also no discussion about like, hey, here are the next possible steps about what mm -hmm. if it feels like you are a danger to yourself right now. These are some of the next possible steps. I want to run this assessment right now and see where it comes out, and based on that, we're going to talk about what the next steps may be for you. There's never like even the mention of like, I think we, we should discuss the possibility of an inpatient stay, even just for an evaluation. Mm -hmm. It's the discussion is like, I want you to fill out these boilerplate forms. And someone no will see you in 10 minutes. Right. right. So mm -hmm. it's a voluntary commitment because Sawyer signs her name to it, um, which I, I don't want to know what is on that form that you're filling out. 
that it wouldn't, I guess she just signs her name at the bottom and is like, yep, and never reads it. Yeah. Um, which again, like how many times do we get forms from people that we just sign? Like, sure, you know, the person who is the expert, the person who I'm entrusting myself to right now is telling me to sign. Therefore, I will sign. Um, I know like whenever I do an intake, like I will walk a person almost line by line through the informed consent and go over it with them. And then the release of information, I'm like, here are all the potential things I could talk to with like your primary care physician or your school or your child's school or like the person you're giving me permission to speak with. Like here are all the different like levels of care, like follow-up treatment, treatment plan, how often we see one another, bing, 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 bing. Like here are 10 different things. Check off the ones that you're comfortable with me disclosing to somebody. Mm -hmm. And if there are areas that you don't want someone to know, like you may want to let your school know that you're seeing some a counselor, but not what goes on in those meetings. Mm -hmm. You might want to keep the details of them completely private. And that's mm -hmm. fine. Just don't check off on those boxes right now and those things stay private at that point does that make sense what i'm saying yeah absolutely and yeah. i think that's like yeah. nothing this counselor does is even remote and even if you make the assumption that some statements happen off camera as she goes from the room one room to mm -hmm. another it seems like she clearly has no idea what's happening to her and she's by no stretch of the imagination a dull woman like she yeah, is right. very sharp and picks up on things so they completely hoodwink her well that's in, the in other part movie. of it too is like Everyone is so cold and disregarding of her mm -hmm. and they treat her like she is a danger to them when there's never a moment where she presents any danger. Like no. And it's like when the nurse looks at her is like, you know, basically threatens her. Like, do I have to get ordered? Like she threatens to harm her at that point. Mm -hmm. Like, right. That is, it's really hard to watch. Like it's really it's really yeah. sickening. It feels, yeah. you know, it, it, if this was happening to me in real life, I would feel mm -hmm. like, oh, this is the beginning of a saw or hostile type yeah. situation. You know, I'm being held against my will and about to get, you know, I mean, it's just, it's mm. very, very disturbing and unsettling. Yeah. yeah. So that that is kind of what I wanted like 90 minutes of. Like that was the movie I was following. Like those bits are absolutely like, they're honestly more terrifying than most horror movies on their own because like you can see where something like that can happen where like you entrust yourself to experts that don't really have your best interests at in mind that see you as just another number that are overworked that have quote unquote seen and heard it all mm -hmm. and are just they're not going to give you any sense of treating you like an individual you are just like the latest you know, salmon swimming upstream that needs to be kind of thrown into the net. Yeah. And that's the thing I think that really, really frustrated me throughout watching the movie. I mean, there are like nine things that really frustrated me, but like she never gets any kind of care for the major trauma that she has been through. Like nobody ever seems to even really care, you mm -hmm. know, and it really like 
kicked up, I think, my need to please, you know, especially in that first session when she's talking like she's she's being pretty vulnerable. She's talking about these things and she is not getting anything back from this mm-hmm. um, therapist like my therapist will say. And and did that bring anything up for you or how does that make you feel like especially if I will stop talking, she'll like give yeah. some kind of like mm-hmm. compassionate Feedback. response. Anything. Exactly. And she doesn't get anything. And I remember when I was pregnant, I mentioned something about like, oh, well, I've been having these chest, um, these chest flutters, you know, and she was like, oh, that's easy. We'll send you a cardiologist. And what I wanted her to say was, that's probably fine. You're probably okay. And Mm -hmm. we'll send you to a cardiologist. And so like, I feel like the fact that she's not getting any of this response, any compassion, I feel like that's really kind of what sends that need to, yes, I'll sign these forms into overdrive of her just kind of trying to do it right and get some kind of thing back, especially as somebody who has been stalked by this person where she just, I feel like at the beginning, you just say what you have to say to get through it until it becomes a bigger problem. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it's just like a particular type of person that this system is really, really good at exploiting, you know, Mm because she is so kind and polite until like, I'm trying to think the first time she really breaks and like, no, fuck this. What is going on? And it's like far down the road, you know? Yeah. I mean, she definitely starts to get not nice as soon as the phone call and cops thing yeah. doesn't work out. And I think her, her attitude toward the other patients in the ward from the get-go bothers me. I me get too. that she I get that she's angry and I get that she's under a lot of stress and is afraid. And that's mm-hmm. where a lot of it's coming from. But and I think she does this thing where she's like, oh, I don't belong here. Not like you freak. Exactly. Like get the fuck away for so it's like a defense mechanism for for dealing with the situation that she's in, yeah. she's finding herself in. But it's still, you know, rubbed me a little bit of the wrong way. As much as I like Sawyer in this movie, mm-hmm. I think it, especially in the final act, like the the violent yeah. thing, which we'll talk about, mm-hmm. is I found it a little hard to believe, even for this character. Yeah. But um, but I, she's not. What I like about a lot of her characterization is that she's not nice. You know, she's a she's a very uh, fleshed out person. She's Mm -hmm. she's nice to people in a manipulative way to get something Mm -hmm. out of them. But she's Mm -hmm. her real self. And that's kind of the point she makes to her stalker is like, I'm not an I'm not some like like warm hearted, nice person. I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of a dick. Like you are completely living in a fantasy world. And I I like her brashness a lot of the time. But I think there's moments in this movie where I'm like, oh, she's (laughs) like. Kind of an right. I found her her plight easy to sympathize with. Yes. I found it very hard to sympathize for Sawyer specifically, specifically because of the interactions, like at the beginning of the movie on the phone and at the end of the movie with her coworker uh, and a couple other points in the movie where she's just kind of like, and I wonder like how much of that was born from what happened to her. Right. And I try to maybe yeah. leave some space for that. but. It yeah, it's tough watch sometimes. I think it's like it's kind of hinted at with her mom. Like ever when her dad dies, is her dad dies when she's relative like a teenager yeah. and she starts to put up walls and act like she's got to be really tough, you know. Mm-hmm. Um to, but and then I think that if I had to theorize, you know, what happened with her, this whole thing with the stalker really puts her over the edge oh. in terms of being really defensive with people mm-hmm. and, and feeling like she needs to be kind of a dick, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with people that she has power over or that she is on an even playing field with. And I think narratively, I really, really like that. Like that yeah. it shows like, because I think it shows a clear dichotomy is like she is really kind to the people she's afraid of, you know, mm-hmm. and everyone else she's 
kind of a jerk too, you right. know. Um, I think maybe she is a little more of a jerk than is feels realistic to me in some ways, mm -hmm. you know. But again, I like that we see a clear dichotomy there. And it's like the two times when she's in the restraint room, they are like night and day when she's talking to David. You know, this is manipulative her and this is no fucks her. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. And we definitely see some moments where she is becoming more human especially in her interactions with nate mm -hmm. and like hey you know at some point she read like when all the like she has a moment to breathe and all the there's that moment like the calm and the storm where she's like hey uh, you've actually been pretty cool to me yeah give me the opportunity to be cool to you in a way that doesn't feel like she's trying to get something mm -hmm. out of him in that moment like she definitely has the potential to be a, a decent person mm -hmm. and i do it i at certain points in this i really admire how tough and bitchy she is i really do mm -hmm. i it's Me like too. i'm living for it at moments but um there's other moments where i'm like okay you're just an asshole right. especially when she um lets the woman get killed <laughs> yeah that was the part where i was like oh i was with you i was overlooking I some know. of the things you said until that moment i was like you just used her right. completely used Used her. I really didn't. I thought that that was just a bad writing choice in a lot yeah, of ways. It, it just didn't feel right, you yeah. know, from an ethical standpoint and from a storytelling standpoint. It's like, why? Why? It could have been so easy to be like, just shoot that a little differently. Help, try to help her get to the door, but Strang grabs her by the hair and breaks her neck or something. Like, why did they have to show her throwing her under the bus, you know, in such yeah. a brutal way? Yeah, because I could even like... As much as I kind of hated the I want you to fuck her in front of me thing, I get it because she had she, to get that knife. She had exactly. to get it. You know, she, she, she has was, no options. You know? Right. Like she yeah. she I, I thought it was actually very clever to mm -hmm. a very clever way to manipulate his weaknesses and his insecurities to get a weapon into the room with her. But she mm -hmm. needed to not actually let Violet get seriously yeah. hurt or killed. Right it to be okay because when she just because she even is like move out of the way like she she doesn't even just close the door before she can open she like pushes her out of the she way she pushes her in back into the room yeah. i think she even says something like oh no way or something like that i don't know yeah, yeah. it's like jesus christ <laughs> and i think if she hadn't have done that i think it would have made it a little easier for me to stomach the her ploy to get her down right. there absolutely you know? it just like, kind of taints that whole thing you mm -hmm. know yeah yeah, it's an ugly scene. It really is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. there were some choices that were made there. Yeah, for sure. Choices. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of choices, especially like the, they're both assaulting her too. Also, she also sexually assaults Violet right before she yeah. dies. Like she yeah. is part of this too. <sighs> it is one of the, we often use the phrase like human shield as a joke, but yeah. She, literally uses violet as a human shield she mm -hmm. does yeah she does she definitely i mean if you were to like do a sequel to this which they should never do or like pick her apart as a character like she definitely um takes being powerless and uses it to let the sh she lets the shit roll downhill and wants to make other yes. people feel powerless mm -hmm. totally because even the game, the sort of psychological game she's playing with her coworker in the yeah. final scene is just so weird. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's that just, scene. It's, yeah. I thought she was really firing her friend. Yeah, like, I what mean, what the fuck are you doing? Well, I thought right. she was going to promote her. Like, you have to clear out because you have a promotion too. And it's like, no, you're just playing mind games with like your coworker. The one that she said to her mom on the phone at the beginning of the movie, she's actually my closest friend, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, right. it's like, um, yeah. I don't think so. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of that is kind of what we were saying mm. is that just that amount of trauma, I think, makes it really hard to have yeah. any kind of meaningful relationships with right. people, especially if it's untreated, you know, or yeah. poorly treated. Yeah. <laughs> Very see, exacerbated by this horrible <laughs> experience. Yeah. 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 And you see, like, the when she brings her date home and she tells him, like, yep, you know, this is what's going to happen. You're going to, it's going to go great for you tonight. And then mm -hmm. she deliberately calls him by the wrong name a bunch of times. Just, and again, it's a pure power move to do mm -hmm. that. Yeah. And I'm still kind of with her in that point in the movie, like at least a little yeah. bit. Like she's, she's clearly like has a genuinely traumatized reaction to him, them starting to kiss and stuff. Like, so, but yeah, I think it's like a little harbinger of what's to come for yes. her. Yeah. And he does leave and he's like, he does. I thought he's it like, was consensual. Like you invited me here and then like you moved them and he doesn't press on her like when she has that you know when she reacts in that way like he doesn't i mean i guess what you know how could you but he right. like leaves you know wow. but it's really like he's like yeah, yeah but he's like would. he's so freaked out he's just completely like it's like i'm out peace yeah. out you know not yeah. even gonna ask if you're okay i'm just leaving <laughs> yeah. like which honestly is probably the best thing yeah and i mean at that point definitely. it was like you know she locks herself in the bathroom it's like you don't want me here <laughs> yeah Goodbye. it's obviously you don't want me to be here the mm. best thing i can do is like extricate myself from this situation right yeah. fast as possible that that scene felt really authentic to me like no. i have been in similar situations there and uh i was like oh it kind of yeah. like gut punched me you know mm -hmm. and the person yeah. that i was with did not leave he wasn't like more aggressive but just trying to like talk to me about it and i was like that no. doesn't nothing no. is solved like the trigger has happened and if i don't know you you're not a trusted person for me to handle a trigger yeah. with you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. totally anyways i do love the mom in this movie it's one oh, of the, i like her too, her too amy irving yeah. One of the few instances of a mom that like unconditionally goes to bat for their child and you, it's a terrific character for seeing how easy it is for someone to get swept up in the system because this is a person that is outside of it. And one of the things I think I put in my notes and forgot to mention was like, they never contact mom. Like they never contact mm -hmm. who you would assume is the emergency contact. Like mm -hmm. no one, like as far as everyone knows, like Claire, uh, Sawyer has disappeared off the face of the earth. Yeah. Right. When she called, when she finally gets a hold of her, she's like, I haven't heard from you in three days. Like what yeah. happened? Right. Yeah. Um, she's supposed to go back to work too. Right. You know, and you see how like the bureaucrat at the hospital is very adept at using legalese mm -hmm. and pseudo comfort speak to make vague threats about what can happen if things are escalated, which is scary. It's and you so, realize yeah. like, you know, like I'll get my lawyer and it's like, huh, you know, it's like that scene from the Simpsons where Mr. Burns like hits a little red button and the team of lawyers Right. <laughs> so like that's the next. Oh, your thing. lawyer. What about my lawyers? Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. You know, and her lawyer, like, is it right? No. Will I do any everything I can for you? Sure. And then it hangs up on her, and Mama's like, yeah. "Fucking hang up on me." So that that sequence was was some of the better filmmaking in this movie yeah. in terms of like the way it's edited that she's mm -hmm. talking to Sawyer and then she says hang in there sweetheart the cavalry is coming yeah. immediately cut to her getting rejected by the cops no. shot down by the admin shot down by lawyers it really does show how quickly someone can be de disenfranchised yeah. once they're in the clutches of this system 
Right. And it, these are people who have the means like her mom could get there 400 miles almost mm-hmm. immediately. Like these are people that are fairly of means. She's got a good right. job. Mm-hmm. And it just shows like the the legal system is always on the side mm-hmm. of the money. Not always, but so often is yeah. on the side of the money because they are the ones with the resources yeah. to pursue it. You know? So right. much of the system is it's set up now to protect the insurance carrier. It's mm-hmm. set up to protect yep. hospitals. I just when this is nowhere near the same level but like i just went through this thing where i went to the emergency room to have my knee looked at and they did like nothing for me and didn't give me my x-rays i go to the orthopedic the next day and they're like where are your x-rays i'm like did they share them with you it's like no they they didn't did we did you tell me to bring them no we didn't they like looked at me for 30 seconds and like sent me on my way and like didn't want to contradict what the er had said and i Ended up getting into it with the doctor I had. I called him back and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. You're giving me an appointment two weeks from now to look at this thing. Mm-hmm. And he tried to explain HIPAA to me. And I'm like, dude, I know HIPAA. Like, I deal with this all the time. I'm right. like, all you need is a release and I will sign it and say, you can share this information. But you're so scared of like, you may say the wrong thing and immediately I'm going to sue you that you would rather just not treat me at all. And I can't, I still can't walk four days later. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's every, so everything is, mm-hmm. everything about our healthcare system has moved yeah. the patient away from the center mm-hmm. of, of treatment. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's all be, and it really is because of the financial system and healthcare, you know, the way that yeah. this healthcare system has been built and uh, it needs to be burned to the ground. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, Medicare for all. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, that's my political moment. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I had in my notes too is because of this system, she's probably never going to go to therapy again. I would not. Absolutely. I mean, like Mike noted at the top, the thing with her at the end is very much a trope. Like your Mm -hmm. mind has been so cracked by the events of the film Mm -hmm. that now you're broken kind of a thing. But at least within this movie, which is set within the psychiatric system, like it it has a real narrative reason for her to not receive help or never really get better because Mm -hmm. how can she, I mean, how, if you went through this, how would you ever trust another medical professional, psychiatric, Mm -hmm. psychological professional? I mean, forget about it. I know. I wouldn't even want to go to an ER. You know, like if I broke my arm, I would still be nervous about that. Yeah. Yeah. And she needs it. Like she needed this care before for the PTSD from her stalker. And now she needs it to process this whole new thing Mm -hmm. that has Mm -hmm. happened. And it just that's the thing that really broke my heart about this movie. And is that how many people don't get care because they are just afraid of the system? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I, I, we recommend therapy a lot. And I feel like I have gotten so much good out of it. And it just makes me think like I've gotten lucky to find really compassionate therapists and a really good system. I think it also helps that my mom is part of that system, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. she knows how to work it. But, you know, I, I understand people that are resistant to that. You know? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of history going on with different, you know, I mean, <laughs> diff- different groups of marginalized people, especially yeah. in America that have been uh, abused and, and experimented on by our healthcare system and by the, and, and there's so much on there that we could get into. It's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of barriers to entry that make a whole lot of sense for a lot of people. And it's unfortunate. Yeah, it really is. Well, and I want to, I don't want to talk too much about this because I feel like it's a little bit left of what we're talking about, but, um, or a little bit askew, but I wanted to talk about David slash George a little bit. Yeah, I do too, actually. 
Played by the Blair Witch Project's Joshua Leonard. Oh, I never made that connection. No way. Yeah. Fuck yes. Okay. Well, we are now for, a, next for, for our next episode. Yeah. We are, we are now a Joshua Leonard Stan podcast. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. I knew that name sounded familiar. Fuck. Mm-hmm. That just blew my That's mind. That's wild. Woo. Um, Yay. Okay. I'm going to have to calm down before I have my thoughts about it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, the thing, like he has so much power in this relationship. And I think the thing that I really connected to really strongly about it was less the specifics of the situation, but just how it has felt to me when working with or living in a house with an abusive person, when all mm-hmm. of the power is on their side. And it really stood out to me a lot that he is the one that gives her this medicine all the time. And that medicine mm-hmm. is essentially a way to control her in mm-hmm. this facility because she I mean I'm assuming she wasn't taking this medicine before she got there and just how like he just drops a pill in there and it just totally fucks her up for how many hours you know and it just so it and then when she has that reaction they restrain her and so now she is restrained with her attacker and that was mm. one of the things too and I don't know if I put it in my notes but the use of mechanical restraints here like one of the big shifts and care has been away from like mechanical whether that's physical restraint mechanical restraint or like chemically induced mechanical restraint mm-hmm. you're you're really looking to do least restrictive care which means like you would calm her you would you may like physically restrain her like but only un- until she has been calmed at that point like they immediately go to mechanical restraints whenever possible and that was like really upsetting to watch Mm -hmm. yeah especially it's like from the moment she ends up in there she is doing something that triggers some form Mm -hmm. of getting sedated getting restrained to the point where she has not one therapeutic session Mm -hmm. not once does she talk to a professional about why she sought help you know it's like it's just like a series of okay, mm-hmm. we're going to lock you in this room. You're going to get into a fight with someone. Okay, we're restraining you again. Okay, we're drugging you again. Mm-hmm. And there's but, been yeah. so many studies about the negative effects of solitary confinement. Like, there's no therapeutic benefit to solitary confinement. It actually mm-hmm. will break you down quicker. And it's, again, used as punishment. Like, the idea of yeah. her getting better. And I'm sorry, Jen, I interrupted your train of thought there. With No, that, you're good. So. Keep going. But yeah, it's just like, it's really troubling how little therapy is actually done in like a therapeutic hospital. Yeah. When I was teaching, we had to convert a room with a padded room Mm -hmm. because we had a student who just would lose control. And But again, like we would restrain her as Mm -hmm. much as we needed to to get her into that room. And once she was calmed down, we let her out. And it was for her safety and for our safety. It wasn't as punishment. And I think that is what we see because she's in there for like, what, 24 hours? And apparently nobody's keeping tabs on her. Right. At some point, she's just in there indefinitely because he changed the paperwork and like nobody, right. wrote, you know, again, there's no playing, double checking. You know? Right. No. And I'm like, is no one doing the rounds down here? No. Like, what the hell? Yeah. I guess David Strine is. And they know that David gave her the pill that caused that outburst. Mm-hmm. Right. Because so who he, else would have? You right. Know? So he made a fairly significant clinical mistake in the med. And I'm someone that's had to disperse medication before. And it's no joke. Like, you cannot. So, and there's literally no consequence for him doing that as a matter of fact like he's coddled by his supervisor yep Mm -hmm. 
that horrible nurse. Yeah. And yeah. it's just like, it, it's, I mean, that, that is where it stretches credulity a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, it starts to the whole, I mean, but again, I forgive it. And, you know, in the sake of, for the sake of the narrative, what interests me about Strine is the amount that he projects onto Sawyer um, mm. and ma- like kind of makes up this narrative that he is fully enacting that has no bearing in reality. I mean, as she in that scene we talked about earlier where she finally confronts him and says everything that's on her mind, she like breaks down all the ways he's totally wrong about her, you know, mm-hmm. but I do find that like every everything he says to her is a projection and he's saying to her like, I love you, you know, I need you in my life, like because there's a piece missing. And that line, there's a piece missing really stuck in my head because it's like, no, there's a piece missing in you, not mm-hmm. Not, and that's not something any person can fill. It's it's just like I thought it was a fairly apt depiction of stalker type and like mm-hmm. obsessive fixated behavior, mm-hmm. where the person just fixates on this person as like you're gonna fill the void in my life. You're gonna be the answer to everything that is wrong with me, um, instead of doing any level of self reflection. Right. Yeah. And it reminded me of a very, a much more insidious version of like the Niles and Daphne storyline in one of the seasons <laughs> on Frasier, you know, where she's like, you don't see me as the person that's gained 50 pounds. You see what's in your head. You oh know? God, I forgot the like that, that whole book, <laughs> Daphne's weight gain episode. Oh, uh, humiliating. I know. I, there's a lot that I really love about that season, but it's, it's also like. It, yes, it's there's moments. Sitcom. Yeah. It was but, a sitcom in the 90s. It's going to have some issues. <laughs> yeah, still love Niles though. But I love the, Niles. Yeah, the thing that I think struck me the most—not struck me the most—I don't know. The thing that got me was like these; these are human beings too, and mm-hmm. they have all of this power over her, and nobody is watching the watchers, and nobody is double checking. Like the dot, we never see the doctor outside of his office. I don't right. think you know. Right? We, we, there's like no presence of any like what appears to actually be a psychiatric or psychological professional on the floor of right. of this thing. Even when they had like Nate almost running the group chat while this nurse in scrubs like sat on her phone. You know, right? It, it felt very much like everybody in this institution is 100% checked out. Yeah, um, and it's all it's all a shell for insurance money. Yeah, it felt very much like the guards and the inmates, you know, and I didn't realize that Nate was a fellow patient for a while, partly because when I was in the ward, like one of the nurses there reminded me a lot of Nate, you know, and he was the one that would lead meetings. But I thought like, because that was something that we would do every day is we would have a, like our blood pressure checked. And if we were on any medication that we would get it. And then we would have like some kind of group meeting. And this was the first time that I had really gotten any kind of exposure to any kind of treatment, you know, um, and like we, st- I, I think we were talking about thought distortions or something. And I was like, oh, okay. But it was very like basic level, but we did that every day. And I, there was like a group meeting time. And then I would meet with a doctor who like would talk about what medication that I was on. And I think the best thing that came out of that is I did get on some medication that I really needed at the time. But she also was like, what's going on? Like, why were you having these thoughts? And we don't see that at all. Nobody ever questions her. Even when she's saying, I had this stalker, nobody thinks to say, oh, how does that experience make you feel? How does that inform where you are right now? And it just, it's not about treating her at all. It is just about money or even like, even eliminating the money part. It's just about keeping her there and keeping her from harming anybody, you Mm -hmm. know? I mean, she 
tries to show them, like, look at this picture in my phone about what's been done. And Mm -hmm. I understand, like, in that moment, you need to, like, get her to kind of be calm and not cause, like, a a panic in the ward. But, Mm -hmm. like, once that that's happened, like, you need to look and and say, what are you trying to show me? What caused this? What was this? You know, what caused you to react in this way? And then there's physical proof there. Like that, that's one of the, and again, like that's one of the things that struck me, but to your point, like this is probably like a minimum wage orderly. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just like, Oh, there's this, you know, quote unquote, crazy person acting out. Like they're not there to really help. They're there to yeah. keep control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's an element of understaffing that I kind of yeah. thought was going on too, especially when he had given her the wrong pill and she was talking about that. I was like, well, they probably do need somebody to fill that yeah. role, you know, right. which again, it's just a system that's mm-hmm. not really working. And that's mm-hmm. why you can sort of forgive the unreality of him so quickly obtaining this job here. He also stole somebody's identity who probably had a professional record that they mm-hmm. just bought. And then they, like she said, they back check, background checked that guy who was dead in the in the woods, yeah. discovered by a jogger. It's always a jogger. It is always a jogger. Yeah, never, right. never go jogging because you will find a dead body at some point yeah. or right. become one or be the dead body. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think of my time working like in a day clinic for adults with developmental disabilities. Like I would work like a nine to five. It would be an exhaust. It could be an exhausting gig because my room. There were some of the persons that could sometimes react in a very violent way, either towards others or towards themselves. Um, And there were a number of restraints we had to do, you know, now and again. But then you would like, in order, because it's so under, you're so underpaid in that role that you're like, okay, what residences have shifts that are open right now so that I can do overtime? And then you have persons at work in those homes that would routinely do in 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. shift, 14-hour days. And they would do, like, back-to-back days like that. And that can be some physically demanding work. Yeah. Um, but I would routinely work 50, 60 hours a week to mm-hmm. get, like, the time. Like, what is the max amount of overtime I can do just so I can make sure that I pay all my bills? Right. It's, you know, it's not a great system. And we're having this argument right now where, in 2020, we're like, oh, frontline healthcare workers and um, essential employees and grocery store clerks, like they're heroes, they're essential. Mm-hmm. And now that it's like time to rehire people, it's, well, we don't want to pay them what they're worth. Right. You know? It's, I mean, it really is criminal. It's yeah. absolutely fucking criminal the way we, we undervalue and mm-hmm. abuse the people that we need to keep society functioning, yeah. you know? Yeah. I don't understand defending billionaires, you know, mm-hmm. just because you want to get like you have to wait an extra five minutes to get your latte right now because there's not enough staff. And I mean, it. it's 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 like you just I, I don't know. I feel like I could go down a rabbit hole, but it's mm-hmm. like people just fundamentally don't understand how the world works. Mm-hmm. They also don't understand how quickly a lot of things could be bankrolled by like taxing yep. just Jeff Bezos a little bit more. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Mm-hmm. The obs- obscenity of the wealth mm-hmm. gap, you know, it's, I mean, yeah. and okay, yeah. this is becoming the Lara's DSA corner <laughs> of okay. podcast, but. Um, well, and speaking I. Speaking of socialists. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Jen, you first. No, that's okay. Because <laughs> he hails from the People's Republic of Cambridge. Um, I was about to, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> um, so, 
after I got over the initial shock of like, oh my God, Matt Damon just Matt turned Damon! Up for, you know, <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I think he's King of surprise intro. cameos. Yes. Give him some intro music. I know. <laughs> but like his scene where he gives like the rapid fire laundry list of Ooh. all the ways that Sawyer oh, needs yeah. to change her daily routine, all the precautions she needs to consider. And all the frivolities that, like, we take for granted, like, uh, that I take for granted, like, posting in social media and mm-hmm. Facebooking friends or Instagram and all that. And how they now pose this grave danger to her and how it was delivered in this, like, rapid fire, like, rat a tat 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 And again, that's one of Soderbergh's gifts of, like, delivering that kind of dialogue. That was probably the second or third scariest moment of the movie because it mm-hmm. was, like so much that was there like that i'm like oh shit yes i understand that being stalked is bad but i'm like holy crap there is like so many things i never would have considered yeah Mm -hmm. and i have in real life considered that you know i mean i've gone through something i mean i didn't have matt damon show up and tell me all of it but you end up on websites you end Mm -hmm. up googling things you end up like i mean also between between being stalked and having been in self you know krav maga self-defense classes for for years they kind of drill all this stuff into your head of always walk with your keys out and all you know always be looking over your shoulder you know that's the kind of stuff they they teach you to think like that in Mm self-defense classes also but it, it it it, it, it's upsetting, you know, yeah. uh, to, to live in the world that way in a lot of ways. And, you know, you sort of let things start to lapse. And in my case, when I had my little stalker incident in 2016, I mean, it all, I, I did, I, sh- I like locked all of my accounts, like all this kind of, you just start to become paranoid about everything. And you start thinking like, oh, did I ever, you know, how, how strong are my passwords and all this kind of, you know, and it's just the cascading effect of everything is so stressful. So I agree that scene really hit home for me and it really rang true to me. And mm-hmm. it was Matt Damon just randomly. So <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. it's a, it's a very powerful scene. Yeah. And I mean, like to tie it to her getting committed, like how many times have we signed a form we didn't read all of, or we mm-hmm. signed things and we didn't understand what we were signing. Now I think I'm pretty diligent about medical forms but even then like there's a lot of legal language that we don't get and I think the thing that was terrifying about that that kind of ties into the feeling of powerlessness I felt was like how vulnerable we are all the time and we Mm -hmm. don't realize it and we just get lucky that nobody happens to be exploiting us today you know and it's just and it's not that we are doing anything wrong because you just can't live your life looking over your shoulder every second it's the system that is wrong and I feel Mm -hmm. like I'm I'm Skinner like saying no 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 it's the children who are wrong you know (laughs) it's like it's the system that needs to change Mm -hmm. because we should be able to trust our healthcare providers you know we should be able to trust people and it just you know I think what this movie ultimately tells me Laura I'm seeing in your notes like trust your gut and that is something that I've had to really really learn because we are socialized especially women we're socialized not to and we're Mm -hmm. socialized to go with the flow and that's when I see her say oh you're such a good listener sure I'll sign your form I think that's kind of what I the current that I'm getting right and you know it's like there's there's she has this like two minute window of time from when she's like in that lobby next to the doors and is like I need to go back to work and then he's like Mm -hmm. follow me at every step of that you're screaming at the camera like, or screaming at the, at your video going like, no, don't but run out of yeah. the, run out, you know, like this kind of thing. And it's, it, you know, you do, you just accept certain things in life and even getting into relationships with people who show stalker, like, or, you know, 
disturbing tendencies in their behavior. You, I mean, as a woman, I've definitely let things happen, even though I had alarm bells going off in the back of my head and I came to regret it. And I realized that every awful situation I've ended up in is uh, on some level, and I'm not self-blaming myself here, but like on some level, I ignored something going off in my lizard brain. I didn't Mm -hmm. listen to my gut because I wanted to I was afraid of harming a budding relationship. I was afraid of offending someone, uh, you know, and you just, it happens on almost a subconscious level, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to some degree you do end up, the pendulum swings real hard in the other direction. And that's why I like some of Sawyer's bitchiness and brashness is because you do kind of have to be a little bit of a dick yeah. in response to that. Cause like, if you, if you, if you let, things happen instead of just speaking your mind, you know, they're usually they're, bad things have happened to me. And I, again, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hesitating over my language here because I in no way want to suggest that anything I did is, you know, deserving of getting stalked or that anybody right. out there did or that Sawyer did as a character, you know, yeah. it's just, this is what life does to you, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? And I think that being socialized to go along and go with the flow and not rock the boat is dangerous. Yeah. And it's a system designed to keep us in that space because that benefits the system. Yeah. Yeah. Like the greatest thing misogyny ever did was convince the world it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. The patriarchy. Yep. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to mention about Unsane before we move on? I think we hit all the things I wanted to discuss. All right. And I'm going to call an audible about skipping the other mental health topics again, because I feel like we've, unless there's anything we really want to talk about, I think kind of like in Shutter Island, we've already mentioned a lot of, I think, what we would be talking about because we're talking about healthcare as a whole. So, yep. Um, So let's move on to other movies we see this in, which is um, we're not going to dive into these movies, but um, just other movies that we know of that kind of hit on these same themes. And the one that I I think the clear one for me is I Care A Lot. And I don't know if you've seen that. Uh -uh. Um, It's on Netflix and it's uh, Rosamund Pike. And it is very much this same thing, except it's not um, a mental health facility. It's an elder care facility. Oh, that movie. Yeah. uh Yeah. Which I I mean, it's not a perfect movie. I really dug it a lot, mostly because it hits that powerlessness feeling I was talking about. But um, just that feeling of like once you once the legal system has an in how it can just totally fuck up your whole life, you know, so. And we've mentioned we've mentioned Girl Interrupted. I mean, I think we mentioned yeah. it last time. That one just really jumped to mind here, especially because of the the listener letter. Yeah, I just thought I'd mention it. But I think we mentioned a lot of other films that uh, feature residential treatment in the Shutter Island episode. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like. I really like the two that we picked. I mm-hmm. thought, yeah. thought this was great. Like good topics of discussion. Yeah. I might cut this out because I feel like I'm just. Like sucking my own dick. But, All right. You know. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Just leave in the, the part path. where you say the phrase sucking my own dick. <laughs> exactly. Nothing else. Like, yeah. Ew, I How many opportunities do we have? <laughs> plenty. Plenty. I um I didn't love this movie, but I love the discussion of it. Like there's a lot of really, really meaty things to like dive into here. Yeah, which is like gin movie all over yeah. the place. You know? Here, here's maybe you can help me out. Here's what threw me off. This is, I think, where I went off the reservation with it. it. Was like, I don't understand how David got. I understand that you find the dude's body in the park. Was he already working there? Like, he he is a 
he's working there like literally the day that Claire gets committed. Yeah. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like that. Yeah, yeah. Come on. There's like letting things go because like it's a movie. And there's like, he had to realize that A, she had been committed. B, that there was an orderly there that was going to start work there that day. Then he had to find out that dude's where he, that dude, then he has to kill him. Then he has to bury him. If there's so many, I'm like, I don't, did I miss something there? Like, no, no, but I do have a whole invented narrative in my own head for how it happened, which is he had spyware on her computer. So he saw mm-hmm. her Google searches. He had already figured out where she was. So she was in the area and he was lurking in one of those spy vans. Like they have, it says like 1-800-Flowers on the outside. Mm-hmm. So he's in the, in the van, which we never see. It's not important. Don't worry about it. <laughs> he's tracking her, her keyboard strokes at, at that. And then he, he uses the dark web to find the application of uh, this this George fellow, clonks him over the head right before he's going to go into the doors reporting to his first day of work um, and puts on his uniform. Yeah, oh that's, you know, it I makes buy. sense to me. <laughs> that's I don't lot. understand your, critic or your critique, Mike. I really don't. <laughs> that's true. Well, here's the thing that I thought was interesting because I, for a long time, didn't know if he was real or not. And... Mm-hmm. If I and I thought for a while that it was um, kind of like the di- the person at the restaurant at the end of the movie, like she was just seeing him, which I thought would have been interesting. I like I personally like where they took it less for plausibility, but more just because, you know, it just kind of hits on themes mm-hmm. that I enjoy. But um, I thought that was interesting. That is, is this real? Is she actually seeing this? And is because I was like, OK, so maybe her being there is making her mental health or her mental illness worse, you know, which I thought would have been an interesting path to take, but, Mm -hmm. you know, but we have what we have and, you know, maybe in the sequel, um, the squeak on sane, the squeak. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Unsane too, even unsaner. Even more unsaneous. Unsane (laughs) clown posse. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Yeah. The UCP. Unsane was a, I'm thinking like unsane. Like a metal band or something. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, Unwound was a fairly decent indie band from the early 90s. But there is a band Unsane. And they were, yeah, like new metal before there was new metal. That's what I remembered. I had some association with them yeah. like fucking. Early 90s, uh, mid-90s. There's some band that I'm associating them with that is like Fear Factory or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is a band from Ireland called Therapy with a question mark at the end of it. That's really <laughs> fucking good. Really? I highly recommend the two albums, Nurse and Trouble Gum. Hmm, Strong Trouble recommends of like, yeah. Trouble Gum can be in our sign-off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so moving that direction. And now it's time for an uplifting moment. Uh, this is where we share any grounding and coping techniques or any self-care that's been particularly effective for us. Uh, grounding and self-care are little tips, tricks, mantras, or practices that help us get through hard days or hard moments. And self-care is anything we do that makes us feel good or feel better. And fuck, man, I've been doing a terrible job at this. Me too. The last couple of weeks, man. We are over three. We are. Uh, I Look, mean, I, the closest. It's okay to struggle. <laughs> it is. Yeah. The closest thing I even have right now. Well, I listened to Firestarter again, which I just would die for that book, I think, yeah. at this point. For the record, I know it's got flaws, but I just fucking love it so much. 
but I think my biggest thing is just like letting some things go, you know, like I haven't been doing my journal. I haven't been doing yoga. That was, those are things that are really important to me. And I know they set me up for success for the day, but sometimes I just can't fucking do it, yeah. you know, and that's okay. And it's a system I have imposed upon myself and nobody else is affected if I don't do it. So I just have been saying, okay, just going to sit here and drink my coffee for a little longer. So. Yeah, I'm kind of in a similar boat of like having not done the right thing. I had a few really good days last week and then a few days that led into a weekend of just like not moving my body or doing anything that's helpful to me or beneficial mentally. But I think it is also important to just like not beat yourself up when that happens and just mm -hmm. be like, you know what, tomorrow's another day. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. as soon as I start that spiral of beating myself up, it just takes me that much longer to bounce back. Totally. Yeah. And I feel bad that day, you mm -hmm. know? I'd say that the only thing that I've done and kind of comes from a position of a little bit of little bit of privilege, and I'll probably admit that, is that like some of the things that we've been able to put off doing, um, like chores like laundry, prepping every meal, grocery shopping, like, you know, like the past couple of weeks, because we've been so busy and stressed out, like I dropped off like 30 pounds of laundry to have like washed, dried and folded at like a little bit less than a buck a pound, you know, because wow. I'm like, it's worth it right now. Mm -hmm. There's like a fairly healthy takeout place where we ordered like a family size tray. And that was literally three nights of dinner mm -hmm. of like chicken, vegetables and rice are all healthy, all tasty. And I didn't have to cook for three mm -hmm. days and grocery shopping. I just do online now and either go pick it up and they put it in the trunk or I just have them deliver it right into my door step at this point. <laughs> and it's things that I'm like, I know I get to get these things done. I would rather spend a few extra bucks and give myself the time back to either watch a movie or spend time with family. And I know that like the other night I was supposed to edit my other show and I just put on headphones and put on some music. And I'm like, you know what? I am going to take two hours and just listen to a bunch of music I like because my body is telling me I need to do that more mm -hmm. than edit this podcast right now, which is available on my other show. <laughs> so yeah, that, that's about it for me for self-care right now. Well, we want to hear about your self-care. Hopefully you're maybe doing a little, a little better than we are this week, but you know, again, like not beating ourselves up. Like we are humans and we're going to make it. And Ah, so yes, we want to hear from you. Have you ever shot a movie on your cell phone? And what's your favorite filter to film the wood scenes? And do you watch The Crown? <laughs> I thought I was going to call her Claire through the entire movie or The Queen. Because I <laughs> fucking love The Crown. Um, anyways, you can answer all these questions and more by following us at Psycho A Pod on all the socials. You can also join our Facebook group, the Psychoanalysis Podcast Support Group. It's a private and moderated group where we can share about episode topics, mental health stuff, or anything else uh, that's on your mind. And you can also email us at psychoapod at gmail.com if you want to share privately. And our homework question for this week is is what is your favorite surprise celebrity cameo in film thinking specifically holy fuck that's matt damon moments you know yes especially the ones and here's the thing that i love about him is that they don't hype it you know like 
I feel like even with Stephen King's cameo in it, like there was a leak that he was probably going to have one. And that's what makes it so effective. And that's one thing I love for being such an A-list star. Like that happens and it's not credited. Yeah. And there's no fit. Yeah, there's no fanfare build up to it in the movie. He's just there totally. as a character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I just think it, it makes me like him more, you know. Plus, he just seems so calming, you know. <laughs> I, in, being in Boston, living, you know, in the Boston area, we were actually legally obligated to support <laughs> Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in all things they do. Like, bet. You, it's, if you're going to live in the Commonwealth, you have to support them legally. I'm <laughs> like Chicago and a Belushi or a Bill Murray yeah. or something like that. Yeah. I'm so glad that was the end of your sentence too, though, because here it's like country music, mm. but it's always like the, yeah, in country music. Yeah. But I hear these terrible stories about them and they're the worst, mm-hmm. you know? And that's what I thought. I was like, don't ruin Matt Damon for me. <laughs> I love him. I'm sure <laughs> he'll get canceled eventually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Anyways. So, What are we watching next? Well, I'm so excited. We are headed to the woods for a comfort horror episode. Chelsea Weber Smith from the American Hysteria podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, is joining us to talk about um, one of my all-time favorite movies, The Blair Witch Project. Hooray! One of mine, too. Very excited about every part of this. American Hysteria is such a great podcast. It really is. Yeah. And they just um, had to to prep for this episode. They just released episodes on horror, like the history of horror and on urban legends, which like, oh, my God, I I will die. So, yes, very excited (laughs) for our next episode, the guest and the movie. Um, So make sure you check out Blair Witch Project and American Hysteria Podcast. And we are also a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. And you can find us here and there along with some other great pods by going to consequence.net. And Mike, where can we find you online? So you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian over on Twitter. You can also find my other podcast, The Pod and the Pendulum. It's just celebrated its two-year anniversary or two-year birthday. Uh, where we cover horror movie franchises. Right now, we're wrapping up The Evil Dead. We just posted, like I literally, before hitting the Zoom button to get into here tonight, posted our episode on Army of Darkness, which was a ton of fun. And we have like a whole year's worth of episodes planned out. So yeah, so that's where you can find me. I will say you can now find... Our show's <gasps> Patreon. I just hit launch. Oh, wow. In- oh, wow. Really? So, yeah. So, we're now live. We'll start having bonus content up in June. But in May, we just want free money. So, <laughs> yeah, just give to- us money. There will be no content. <laughs> yeah. We'll have like, an official pitch for it soon, but it's yeah. getting very late. But just give us your money. <laughs> trust us. us. Give us your just money. Trust, trust us. us. Yeah. Find the form. <laughs> Patreon. Right. You just sign the form, sign on the dotted line. <laughs> it's boilerplate. Patreon.com slash psychoanalysis podcast, where you can either join us at the Brian Cox, Anthony Hopkins, or Mads Mickelson level of hate. So. <laughs> that still nice. really tickles me pink. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Ah, and we'll post more information about that um, once our brains function yep. a little more <laughs> clearly because mine is just not right now. And Laura, where can we find you? Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter 
at Underalls, U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S. Much like the lightly laundered hospital issue um, threadbare underpants that they mm-hmm. make you wear after you have to strip everything. Um, and whoops, you're, you're that's right, you're committed. Mm. Yeah. So uh, these, these are to these to these underpants. <laughs> you won't <laughs> ever want to take them off. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's at Underalls U N D E R A L L S on Twitter. And I'm occasionally on the Losers Club, and I just recorded an episode of Halloweenies. It's been a minute since I've been on there, so I'm excited about that. We recorded an episode on Scream 2 that may turn into two episodes on Scream 2. (laughs) Two for two, given the uh, length that it is. So I am excited to have that out in the world. I, love I that can't movie. wait to listen to it because I love that movie. And I the Halloweenies podcast is fucking awesome. It's yeah, such a I was show. really excited to be back. So yeah. uh, you can find me at Jim Ferratu on all of the socials. You can find me on the Losers Club. We just dropped our episode on King's works um, through the lens of addiction and recovery, which I thought pretty mm. proud of that episode and then i'm also going to be on a fire starter commentary yeah. so that's coming up <laughs> soon it's i mean you know i'll just talk till the end of time about that um and you can also find me writing about villainous women at the strong female antagonist blog i just dropped um a post on mommy dearest and my next one i'll say here before i'll say anywhere else is going to be about the loved ones and lola oh yeah wow okay (laughs) strap in (laughs) i know she is fascinating um so yeah you can find me there at sf antagonist and jim ferratu and just i don't know tweeting it up and being (laughs) weird all over social media (laughs) so um yeah so that's our episode on unsane whoo this was a there's a lot here so thank you for joining us thank you to the two of you for helping me unpack this mind fuck of a movie anytime yeah and uh <laughs> and um, listeners, thank you for spending time with us too. Um, please make sure to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And let's sign off. We came here to chew bubblegum and take care of ourselves. And we're, we're all, all out of bubblegum. Troublegum. Trouble Tra- ah, nice. <laughs> so good. I'm telling you, give them a listen. <laughs> Consequence Podcast Network.